0: Welcome to The Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Maslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. This episode is brought to you by Element Electrolytes. This month, we are switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP Element partners, including CarnivoreCast listeners. You can now receive a free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link at drinkelementcom slash carnivorecast. I'll provide it in the show notes as well. The Element sample pack includes one packet of every flavor. This is the perfect offer for anyone who's interested in trying all the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash carnworkcast to get this special offer and claim the deal. Element electrolytes are convenient, evidence-based, and delicious. They're used by Navy SEAL teams, Olympic weightlifters, jujitsu athletes, and everyday people who want to make themselves better like you and me. Dr. Bill Schindler, at Dr. Bill Schindler on Instagram, is a modern anthropologist specializing in primitive technology and experimental archaeology at Washington College to help understand how our prehistoric ancestors lived. He's the author of Eat Like a Human, the owner of Modern Stone Age Kitchen with his family, and the director and founder of the ES Food Lab. He's also been on multiple podcasts and starred on the Great Human Race TV show on National Geographic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bill. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, so I, I think a lot of my audience will be familiar with you um, from your trips around the podcast circuit. Uh, but I would love to hear uh, you, in your own words, describe your background and how you got into anthropology.
1: Ah, I'd love to. So, you know, I grew up in in New Jersey. I was actually, I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, right near the beach. And um, all my friends, parents, for the most part, worked in New York City. Everybody just, everybody commuted on the train. Uh, But my parents didn't. My parents were were at home, um, you you know, worked nearby. And my dad spent a lot of time uh, making sure that I, even though I grew up in the suburbs of the city, I, I grew up to really appreciate the outdoors. And he had me hunting and fishing and trapping and hiking and camping at any moment possible. And that really, I think, drove home the, uh, the need for humans to have this connection with the world around them. And then through that, uh, he and I both certainly had a, had a passion for the past. We loved learning about Native American history and, and even more recent historic history with, you know, uh, uh, fur trappers and mountain men and those sorts of things. And that, you know, those two things together really drove me to become an archaeologist and an anthropologist to really just understand our, our, our shared ancestral past as humans, but at the same time, I had this incredibly unhealthy relationship with food. And anybody have heard heard any of the podcast podcasts before, or have heard a little bit of this story. But I grew up a very unhealthy, um, overweight kid who with a, a poor body, uh, body image and just this unhealthy relationship with food, and this, this idea that you know food as a kid wasn't something that nourished me. Food was something that you know made me ugly and made me heavy and made other kids make fun of me. And then later on, you know, the quick version of the stories later on, I became a division one athlete and I wrestled for Ohio state. And even though I looked the part of an athlete and actually was performing quite well, despite my, my bad diet, um, my relationship with food was different, but no more healthy. I went from something that I thought made me, made me uglier, made me, made me heavy to something that I was scared of, you know, fat, I'm sorry for food for a wrestler is something that we're scared of. It's something that causes us mm. to make, to miss weight. And then eventually, when I stopped becoming an athlete, when I stopped competing and, and I was uh, no longer wrestling, all the weight poured back on. And uh, I, I started suffering immediately from all sorts of, of metabolic disease um, that really lasted for decades. And the, the cool thing about my approach and what I think makes it so powerful is that there was a moment in my life about 20 years ago that I realized the power of merging these two things together, this 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 uh, desire, this quest to have a healthy relationship with food and, and nourish myself with this passion and this drive and, and this academic training in archaeology and anthropology. And it wasn't until I put those two parts of my life together that I really started to get the answers that I needed to not only nourish myself, but also nourish my family. That's so fascinating because I had almost the
0: exact same experience with uh, being a lightweight grower for eight Uh years. I was a competitive lightweight rower. Um, I actually often say that I should have been a wrestler because I have a very long (laughs) torso and very short legs. My wife is five foot four and we have the same, uh, hip height and I'm (laughs) ten. So I mean a terrible rower. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of those problems with eating, um, coming out of, out of school and a lot of metabolic dysfunction and GI dysfunction as well.
1: Yeah, and, and it was really the GI dysfunction that was causing the most um, issues with me, quality of life issues. You know, everybody around me, um, my friends, colleagues, people I work with, everybody was just, you know, at that time, everybody's heavy. I mean, it's just like, as you know today, like everybody. just So it wasn't like I stuck out as the heavy adult. Most adults are heavy. Mm. It was the quality of life that uh, from the GI issues that really, you know, one of the stories I tell all the time is my wife and I, Uh, We met working in a restaurant and then we both graduated college. We were both teaching and we didn't have much money just starting out trying to save money to get a house and start a family. And every now and then we'd get the opportunity to save up enough money to go out to eat dinner. And we would go. And I remember every single time we went out to eat dinner, because it wasn't that many times. I remember every one of them that I would actually look at and identify the places on the way to the restaurant that had bathrooms a McDonald's, a gas oh. station, wherever that I, cause I knew I was, I would have to stop at least once, if not twice on the way home. And it wasn't like a 40 minute trip. And we're talking about a 15 minute drive wow. and, uh, and I would lose dinner that quick. And, and it was really upsetting. And my wife was mad because we spent all this money on dinner we didn't have. <laughs> and then I'd lose it right away. Mm. But it was it was those sorts of things. And, you know, restless leg syndrome and, and not being able to sleep and all the other things that went along with the pain, joint pain, inflammation, um, constantly being sick, all these things that unfortunately now have been normalize. It's happening at such a frequency that, oh, it's just a normal part of being an adult. It's just a normal part of getting old. It's just a normal part of living in a modern world. And it isn't. It's Well, unfortunately, it is normal because so many people are, but it shouldn't be that way. And what i like to say is, you know, we are animals, whether we want to believe it or not. Um, and we have completely domesticated ourselves. But I think we should look at other wild animals as um as poster children for what life should be like. I mean, wild animals live these incredible lives and then kill over dead. I mean, that, that's what they live these awesome lives and then kill over dead. We spend the last several decades of our life dying and then we kill over dead. And that is not the kind of life that I want to live. I want to live this incredible life and then kill over dead, just like a wild animal. And that's how it should be. Yeah,
0: that's very well said. And I, I want to follow through with the, the rest of your story, but I want to... Um take us on a little bit of a side tangent. Um, regarding your studies, why why have you focused on the technology and tools? And what does that mean to you?
1: Well, as an archaeologist, what we do is we study, well, really, archaeologists study trash. It's been romanticized through, through Indiana Jones and, and those sorts of <laughs> things, the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. But the reality is, archaeologists study trash we study the things that are left behind by people in the past and and most of the time that's trash right nobody throws away things on purpose that are that are still usable um but really you know if we want to dig a little bit deeper what we really look at and spend a lot of time studying and using to interpret the past are residues of activities of the past um i mean you can think about just think about anything that you do and when you're in the midst of it, whether it's making breakfast or being in the middle of a party or whatever you're doing, and, and imagine if you just stopped and walked away and what you would have left behind um, in that moment from engaging in whatever that activity is. Those things are what we study as archaeologists. And what they are, they're remnants of, they're, they're actually technologies, they're remnants of technological innovations. Now, I'm a prehistoric archaeologist, which means I study um I focus mostly on those technologies before the written record. Um, And depending on where you are in the world, that's a different time, you know, different time periods when the written record comes in. But really it's an incredible uh, amount of time. So what what I'm looking at really uh, is about three and a half million years worth of time and technological innovation. And And why this is so important to human diet and health is that, one of the huge realizations I've had years ago was that almost every single prehistoric technology for three and a half million years worth of time was folk had something to do with food. Like it either about uh, had to do with allowing us to access food or process food or store food or redistribute food or share food or something to do with food. And if you think about all the Albert Einstein's the best, the most amazing minds of our species and all our ancestral species were focused, the best inventors ever for three and a half million years, almost every single thing that they invented had something to do with food that become that, 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 you know, to me means that's incredibly important. And then if you look at the role that, uh, dietary change had over time on our evolutionary past and our evolutionary changes through time, and literally those those dietary changes built us as a species, biologically and culturally, as homo sapiens, and those technologies are what allowed those changes in our diets over three and a half million years, then there must be something incredibly important in those technologies. And unfortunately, they've been overlooked in most of the dietary discussions that we have. And we talk a lot about what we should be eating should we how much fat should we have how much protein should we have how much vitamin d do we need those sorts of things and those things are important for sure but what's most or what is at least as equally important and in my mind i think even more important to that than that discussion is the discussion how should we be eating we modern day homo sapiens have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet and we do because we haven't needed that digestive tract Literally, at least, in, in we haven't needed that digestive tract to continue to, to grow and evolve the same way our bodies did because we have been able to supplement what a digestive tract does through these technological innovations to things like fermenting and cooking and nishtomalizing and a whole host of other sorts of, of technologies that do what other animals do naturally inside of their bodies. We humans have been, have been able through technological innovation, to harness the power of what other animals can do in their bodies and do it outside of our bodies. And that is what, again, what have really allowed our diets to change and support massive body and brain growth. What should have happened over millions of years of time um, as our bodies grew and our brains grew, which meant in both cases, our nutritional needs grew as well, especially with brain growth, nutritional needs were skyrocketing um what should have what we should have seen in conjunction with body and brain growth over time through 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 uh, millions of years of evolution is that our digestive tracts were growing as well right? Our stomachs should have been getting larger for us to allow us to eat more food at the same time and allow it to sit there longer to more fully break down. And, and our small intestines should have been, should have been changing as well to allow us to to have more food store there and stay there longer and allow it, you know, the broken down food, the nutrients from it to get absorbed through the, uh, through this, uh intestinal walls and go where it needs to be in the bodies. And All these things that should have, that would have allowed, um, you know, our bodies to get more nutrition to support body and brain growth. But that's not what happens. If anything, our, we know for, we know that two things anatomically changed or got smaller and started to go away as our bodies and brains grew. One is our teeth were getting smaller and our digestive tracts were getting smaller in proportion to our body size. It, it, it's the exact opposite of what should have happened. And, and what that really shows me is that we were getting so good at processing food and getting it ready for our bodies before we consumed it, that we didn't need all that work to happen inside of our bodies. That's really interesting. And what are, what are some of those
0: tools that allowed us to do that? And, and what do they tell us about
1: how we hunted, how we lived, how we ate? Well, here's the crazy thing. The tools don't have, are, 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 you know, I, I think somebody might be waiting for me to say, oh, my gosh, this incredible invention. And it was this and comp-. none of them are complicated. In fact, they're incredibly simple. The very first tool that we have identified in the archaeological record is an incredibly basic stone tool called um, uh, Lemekwe tool, uh, which is named after the site in Kenya, just west of Lake Turkana, where it was first found. It dates to 3.3 million years ago, and it's a simple stone flake. So one of our, we think, Australopithecine ancestors, three uh, a little more than 3 million years ago, picked up two rocks of the right material, struck them together at the right angle, and produced this flake in less than a second. And it doesn't seem like that's a very big deal. Oh my gosh, they just banged two rocks together. It happened to be rocks of the right material that had the right characteristics that were struck at the right angle, and for the first time ever in the history of the planet our ancestors produced a tool that allowed them to overcome their physical limitations. The power of that sharp edge on that rock. uh, I I can't even relay. Just think about that. They produced in less than a second, something that was sharper and more durable than anything on their bodies. And when it got dull, they could strike it again and produce another razor sharp edge. And these tools we know were being used to butcher animals in the African savanna because we found the bones um, we're very similar tools. For, we're doing the butchering, so um, that's first number one. For the first time ever, we had access to large um, pieces of meat from animals that were killed by other animals. Right, we were, we were able to scavenge. Other, uh, and, and that's powerful. And our stone tool technology through time over the next three and a half million years just continued to improve and get more specialized and, and have the ability to do all sorts of things from cutting and chopping and slicing and dicing to uh, making projectile points that would get put on the end of a spear or on the end of an arrow that allowed us to take down, uh, allowed us to hunt at a distance, take down animals at will. Uh, fire, incredibly powerful technology that uh, many of us, including me, believe was first harnessed and controlled at about 2 million years ago. And, and fire and the ability to cook our food is incredibly powerful. Not only does it help make certain foods safe by uh, detoxifying and by, um, uh, by certain, in some cases, killing off uh, pathogenic uh, microbes, but it also helps us break down our food and, and allow our bodies to work less hard to access the nutrients that are on the inside. Um, other technologies, a uh, little more recent things that I mentioned earlier, like niche is literally the only way on the planet we've ever figured out. And it's a technology that we know dates to several million, or sorry, several thousand years ago, but I think it's, we're going to find that it dates closer to about eight or 9,000 years ago. Um, is a tech, the only technology we've ever invented that allows, um, the human body to have, uh, complete access to the nutrition in maize or corn. Um, other Very simple things uh, like uh, geophagy, which is the intentional consumption of earth, which is something that almost every animal on the planet does and engages in that practice and our human ancestors engage in it. And there are certain um, groups around the world that still continue to engage in it. But there's two reasons um, that animals, including humans, would eat earth. Number one, because it's it's a chance to get certain minerals into our diets that otherwise might not be in our food. And secondly, and in some cases more importantly, it is a way to detoxify certain plants in our diets. I spent time with an Aymara a native group in um, the Lake Titicaca region in Bolivia several years ago to learn how they detoxify incredibly dangerous and toxic potatoes. And this one group still engages in geophagy. They actually eat these potatoes with clay because the clay binds with the toxins um, in the potatoes. And wow would 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 literally otherwise kill them if they weren't eating clay at the same time
0: that's crazy
1: and um what
0: other tribes and groups have you spent time with personally?
1: Oh well, you know we don't and my family and I have spent a lot of time traveling um and learning from traditional indigenous groups, and we really don't um only. You know, designated it's just going to be this one group that is, you know, very untouched. <laughs> so, we, 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 there's a lot of information we can get from a lot of different groups of people. So, sometimes it's a group that, you know, is, is, is still engaged in very, very ancestral practices. Sometimes it's a little bit more historic and traditional. Um, we've spent a lot of time um, in Africa. We've been with the Suburban Warriors, we've been with, um, in West Pocat, uh, learning about uh, fermented dairy and, and something called Mersic. We've been in Mongolia with uh, herders on the steppe. We've spent time with the Aymara in Bolivia and the Quechua in um, in Peru, up in the Andes. Um, but at this, we've also spent time with, you know, in traditional Italian households and traditional Irish households, where there's still some incredible things that we can learn that are practices that that we know for sure are at least several generations deep, but in some cases could be a heck of a lot longer. And what we've really found is that the the, uh, diversity and one of the things that I, I wish was in the conversation a little bit more, you know, when when I I understand why it's not, when we talk about say a paleo diet or, or a diet in the past or a traditional diet, we overlook immediately just by even, even using that term, a paleo diet and starting to identify some things in there, we're, we're immediately discounting an incredible amount of diversity. And we are talking about three and a half million years worth of, of uh, diversity in, in diets and approaches to food. And plus we're talking, uh, you know, in many different geographic locations at the same time. And I, If we took all the information that we have right now about ancestral and traditional diets, we are literally only scratching the surface. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. There's still so much to learn. The problem is one of the things we're fighting really hard to do is document as much as we can because these practices are just disappearing and dying incredibly rapidly.
0: A lot of people ask me about how to make liver more tasteful and how to cook it or incorporate other organ meats on carnivore. Optimal Carnivore can help you do just that with their grass-fed organ complex. It was created by carnivores for carnivores. They start by sourcing 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, gently freeze-drying the organs, and encapsulating them into convenient bovine gelatin capsules. Just six of these capsules a day is the same as eating an ounce of raw organ meat. I personally take these every single day, as does my wife. Even though we both eat liver and other organ meats, our ancestors would have eaten the whole animal. And this unique blend has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, kidney, spleen, et cetera. And I think it's great to get a daily dose of these organs when you can. So it covers all your bases, whether you're at home or traveling. What's also cool is they plant a tree for every product sold, which helps the environment. So visit www. Visit OptimalCarnWare.com slash cast and use the code CarnWare10 to receive 10% off your purchase. Thanks, and back to the show. That's sad, but uh, it sounds like you're doing great work to, to try to support that. Um, and what what do you think are some of the themes uh, around nutrition that we can learn from these studies and apply to
1: modern food environment? And, and not just what we eat, but also the way we we approach food. You know, my favorite part of what you just said was um, how we can apply it to the modern food environment, and that's so incredibly important. I've spent, so, and that's one of the reasons I'm, we're doing the work that we're doing right now, um, because we can have incredible, in-depth academic conversations at conferences and give papers, and you know all the, all these things about the you know the, these little tiny innuendo, these, you know these, these small little details about all these different things that we're learning, but it doesn't. It's just a mental exercise, unless there's a way to apply it and make a difference in people's lives today and in the, in, in the um, food system moving forward. So I'm, I'm I love that you said that. There's a couple things that uh, there's a lot of things that I have noticed and witnessed and, and learned about uh, spending time with the, with these different groups and these incredible people and families. Uh, number one, um, there seems to be a universal thirst <laughs> desire for fat. Um, fat is incredibly important. Uh, in fact, it, it's so, and I, and when I say fat, uh, as you can imagine, I'm talking about high quality animal fat from animal sources. Yeah. Um, it, it's so incredibly important that it dictates how people go about butchering. It dictates how they go about cooking. It goes, but it also, uh, permeates, um, uh, tradition and religion and stories and folklore and all of these sorts of things. And and we can even get into a few examples in a little while if you like. Um, So fat is incredibly important. High quality fat is incredibly important. Um, The other thing that uh, is universal is that anyone who has a close connection to where their food comes from, uh, I mean, a real close visceral connection uses almost every part of an animal when they kill it. And again, that's, that is, that permeates that, that approach permeates not only their diets, but also their, their uh, traditions and religion and, and, and and those sorts of things as well. And the, the one sort of caveat there is there usually is some sort of a, uh, a taboo or a exists. There's usually something, some part of an animal in some cases isn't used. Maybe the gallbladder in certain cases or something else somewhere else. But other than these sorts of um, uh, small bits and pieces that might not get, I mean, we're talking about groups of people that are eating upwards of 90% of an animal that, that they kill. Now, when you compare that, just as a comparison for everyone listening, when you compare that to a modern American diet, we only get about 55% of a pig and about 50% of a cow in our diets in a grocery store. And that's if we're buying all the different parts that are there. So we're we're, half of the animal isn't even making it to a grocery store and isn't even making it into our consciousness being food. And we're talking about people that are, that are using almost the entire animal. Um, It makes sense nutritionally. It makes sense ethically. and It makes sense from a sustainable perspective as well. So um, we have high quality fat, um, we have uh, no, true nose to tail approaches to animals. And I will say that in most cases, wherever I've been, vegetables and plant materials have been in, in diets, but they're in diets cautiously. It, it, there isn't that same perspective that we have today. I, I like because I use my own example here, but I used to be of that mindset that if I was going to be healthy, it would happen in the produce section of the grocery store. And it was the one part of the grocery store that I would go in and literally turn my brain off, Right? It, 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 which is a very dangerous thing when we're talking about food. I'd go in there with my shopping cart and I'd say, OK, here I'm in the produce section. If I'm going to get healthy, this is the place to get healthy. Some of this is good. More of it must be better. And I just start loading my cart with everything, you know, all the different vegetables and fruits that are there and think for some way it's going to magically make me get healthy. Um, that's not the same case for um, groups around the world, but the traditional groups that i spend time with. Uh, in, in most cases, vegetables, vegetable matter, or plants have been in their diets, but it's in, first of all, it's hyper-seasonal and hyper-local by default. Um, And because of their close relationship with plants, they understand the dangers that plants pose to human health. Um, Number one, they truly understand that even though plants do have nutritional value, uh, that nutrition is quite often locked up and inaccessible to our bodies unless it goes through extensive processing. Um, And number two, all plants have some sort of toxin and need to be um, detoxified in some way. And this is, this is incredibly important because that in my mind is the way that we approach, should be approaching vegetables, even from the produce section of the grocery store. Um, quite, they also understand quite often that plants have very powerful medicinal qualities. And when you see plants in the diet, It's often, they're often used because of a combination of their value as food, but also as medicine at the same time. And as you can imagine, the same way we would approach medicine today, sort of with caution, and we need a little bit of this, too much can cause these issues. That's the way plants are approached as well. Um, Salt is very important. And when, uh, and, and as you can imagine, sweet things are difficult to access in the natural world. When, you know, I've spent time with the Hods in Africa and and when they can get honey, oh, they love honey, but and they'll eat a ton of it. But they only have access to it every now and then. So that sort of urging we have to for, for sweet things in our diets is is tempered by uh, restricted access to it. The other, oh, the other thing I, I'll, I'll mention as well, except for one case, um, which is the Samburu. Uh, I haven't spent much time with Maasai, but it, it's the same with them. And except for those two cases, traditional use of dairy in our diets was always fermented. Always. And, and, there, and we can talk more about it. There's, there's really important reasons for that. But this act of sitting down and pouring a glass of milk and, and, and slugging it or pouring it over cereal and eating it in our cereal, that's something that we just don't see um, in traditional or ancestral diets. The dairy was fermented into things like kefir or yogurt or, or, or high-quality cheeses or those sorts of things.
0: Super interesting. Yeah, I know, Doctor Schindler. You've done some great content on the problems with the way we consume dairy in the modern world. Can you expound on that a little
1: bit? Yeah. So the best way to talk about and I know dairy is, is a hot topic, especially in the in the paleo carnivore keto world. Anyhow, uh, so l- let me uh, relay a little bit about how I how I approach dairy uh, because I it's that same sort of thing we started with earlier. There's a huge difference between what we eat and how we eat it. Uh, if we're only focused on the question of what we should eat. Um, and if you're talking about something like ultra pasteurized skim milk from the grocery store, then, or, or yogurt that's loaded with sugar and all kinds of artificial things then no, that, that has no place in, a, in, in our diet, in a human diet whatsoever, neither of those things. Um, but that's when we say, okay, dairy, and, and we focus on the, but if you talk about the, how there's a lot of differences And how dairy can be treated um, that really make the difference in in my mind, whether or not it can be part of a healthy human diet. In order to get at that topic, let's really quickly talk about what happens when we are infants and consume our mother's milk. I will say um, most of the food that we consume and have consumed for millions of years, we are not designed to consume. Our digestive tracts are not naturally designed to consume these things. But what we've done as humans is figured out ways through technology, those powerful technologies I mentioned earlier, to transform raw materials that we have no business consuming into something that's safe and nourishing for our bodies. And it's because of those technologies and uh, increasing the diversity and value in our food system. Uh, And in our diets, that we've been able to actually support massive body and brain growth. So it's this weird situation where we're not designed to eat these foods. We figured out how to do it, and then we now require those foods because we built our bodies and brains on the backs of it. Dairy is the one thing I would say is the one food that humans are designed to consume is dairy. Now we're only designed to consume that when we're infants, but we are we as mammals are perfectly designed to consume dairy from our mothers, Um, and then when we get weaned off of our mothers. Uh, we biologically change, and we suppress or lose the ability to consume dairy in the same safe and nourishing way as we did when we were infants. And I'll get back to what we, how we can overcome that in a minute. But let's go back to when we were infants. What do we, what do we do? What, how do we, as a mammal, like every other mammal, consume dairy from our mothers? Well, we drink from our mothers, and the milk that comes from our mothers completely different than baby formula, completely different than the milk on the grocery store shelves. The milk that's coming from our mothers, there's several things that are key about it. Number one, it's teeming with live beneficial bacteria. It is at body temperature. And those bacteria are perfectly designed, and you can understand why, those bacteria are perfectly designed to operate best at body temperature. We can, and it's already in the state of fermenting when it goes into our mouths. I mean, it literally goes from our mother's body into our mouths directly. And when it goes into our bodies, um, it gets hit with a number of different enzymes that we naturally produce as infant humans. One of them is lipase, which is an enzyme that helps break down the fat in milk. Another is lactase, which helps break down the sugars in milk, the lactose. And another, depending on the animal we are, um, is Called chymosin, or it's a chymosin like enzyme for humans that do things to the proteins that actually make the milk coagulate and get a little bit thick. Um, and the reason that this happens is because when we're infants and all we're doing is consuming liquids, right, consuming milk, liquids pass through our digestive tracts too fast for it to chemically and physically break down to, to the state that it needs to be to be absorbed properly into our bodies. And it doesn't sit in our intestines long enough. To, for those nutrients to be absorbed properly anyhow. So what, what nature has figured out is, is if we can partially solidify this milk um, into, into something else, it'll be a semi-solid. It'll sit there longer. Our stomachs can chemically and physically work on it better. Then it can go into our small intestines and sit there a little bit longer, and then those nutrients can be absorbed through our bodies. When we get weaned off of our off of our mother's milk we and, and start to eat solid foods, Us, like other mammals, lose the ability to produce those enzymes, or at least don't produce them the same amount. So we're no longer, many many people say, okay, you're no longer designed to consume dairy. But let's back up for just a minute. If you ask me how we as humans can eat just about any food on the planet that we don't have any business biologically eating, I would say, hey, well, let's find an animal that's designed to consume it properly and replicate what happens in their bodies outside of our bodies before we consume it. So a great example is a cow. Like a cow is perfectly designed to consume tough vegetable materials. And what a cow does is a cow eats grass and tough vegetable materials. It has, it has perfectly designed teeth and palate to, to, to physically break it down. Then it swallows it and it goes into a specialized chamber in its stomach that allow it called the rumen that allows it to ferment and it ferments for a little bit, and then they throw up into their mouths and they chew it some more, and then they swallow it again, and it ferments longer, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And finally, when it's in the right state, it goes through the rest of their digestive tract. What do we do as humans? We can't do that, but we eat tough vegetable materials like cabbage that we have a difficulty, our incredibly inefficient digestive tract has difficulty breaking down something like cabbage. We don't have a fermenta- fermentation chamber in our stomachs, but what, we, what do we do? We take that cabbage... And we chop it up, add a little bit of salt, stick it in a mason jar, and ferment it on the counter before we eat it. And that sauerkraut at the end of about 10 days to two weeks is a completely different food than that cabbage. It's easier for our bodies to digest, and we can get more nutrition from it. So in the case of dairy, what do we do? Like, What can we do to replicate, in in our case, what we as infant humans did to that dairy to make it as safe and nourishing as possible? Well, one of the things is that we can ferment it, right? So that one of the things that happens when that dairy that already fermenting dairy is slowed down in our stomach, it continues to go through the fermentation process in our bodies. The other thing that happens is that chymosin, that works on, on it to coagulate it in the cheese making world is known as rennet. So what all mammals actually do in their stomach is actually just create cheese. They're taking raw milk, creating a fermented dairy product. in this, in this case, it's cheese. And, um, and then that is a pre-digestion and a digestion uh, step that allows us nutrients to be absorbed by our bodies. So one of the things I like to say is if you take an infant and, and you're burping the baby on your, on your shoulder and it spits up and it looks like cottage cheese and it smells like provolone, that's because it's exactly what it is. The baby has produced cheese in its stomach. Wow. So when, when we take high-quality dairy and go through the fermentation process, and make real traditional yogurt, real kefir, real clabber, real traditional cheese, we are replicating the process that goes on, process that went on in our own bodies when we were infants. We're doing it outside of our bodies and consuming a completely different food than a glass of milk. And to me, that's exactly what we need to focus on. You want to have a conversation about you know, consuming dairy and a, in a, in a healthy modern human diet. Absolutely. I'd love to have one, but if you're going to have the conversation, we need to separate ultra pasteurized skim milk and a real traditional fermented dairy product. And similarly, what, um,
0: I think one thing that's been fairly controversial in like the paleo and carnivore spheres is nuts. Um, yeah. what, um, what have your studies
1: uncovered about that? There's a, um, I have a lot to say about nuts. If you'd asked me this question five years ago, I would have said nuts are an absolutely amazing food. They're full of all sorts of uh, protein and fat and even certain minerals. And they're great. And they're, you know, they're easy. They're, they're not that expensive in the grocery stores right now, especially in big box stores. We should get them. We should embrace them. We should love them. Um, I have a completely different approach to nuts today, mostly because of personal experiences, but um, nuts are incredibly dangerous. Nuts, seeds, legumes are incredibly dangerous. That doesn't mean necessarily we shouldn't consume them, but it does mean we should definitely consume them with caution and with the same sort of um, approach that we approach any other food in our diets. It's not something that we are designed to consume. If we're going to consume them, we have to think long and hard about how to consume them in the safest and most nourishing way possible. Here's the problem with nuts and and plants in general. Plants produce something uh, called allelochemicals. They're known as secondary compounds. And these secondary compounds allow the plants, these plants that are stationary, they do not move, it allows them or these allelochemicals allow the plants to interact with the outside world. In some cases, these allelochemicals attract, right, they produce sweet-smelling flowers and beautiful bright flowers that attract pollinators because they need that for for their life cycle to pollinate properly. Um, Sometimes uh, they will end up producing sweet, delicious-tasting and and delicious-smelling fruits because that's the way that the plant attracts animals to eat the fruit and then deposit the seeds in a pile of manure somewhere else and and allow to propagate the species. That's great. But a lot of these illegal chemicals are um, produced toxins that repel and, and and, uh, just as much as pollinating flowers and spreading seeds through fruit is a way to ensure that longevity of the species Repelling animals from eating stalks and stems, and 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 most importantly, the babies of the plants—the grains, the nuts, the legumes, the seeds—those uh, those toxins are there to allow the species to continue to survive as well. So, a, a general rule. Now, it isn't a hard fast rule, and it and certainly, you, if you're going to eat any part of a plant, you should. Understand the plant, understand the life cycle of the plant, understand the toxins and the, and the hazards in, in consuming the plant. But in general, flowers and fruits are usually fairly benign. Remember that most of the time they're trying to attract, and it doesn't do them a lot of good if they're full of all sorts of toxins. Right? It works against what they're trying to, to do. But seeds and nuts and grains are, and legumes are. There, those are the babies of the plants, and if they die before. They can produce new life. Then the 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 plant's not going to, you know, the species isn't going to survive. So they throw a lot of chemicals at nuts, seeds, legumes, grains to keep them dormant, allow them to stay safe until they're in the perfect environment to let down their defenses and then create new life. I mean, physically and chemically. So if you think about a seed, I mean, think about a watermelon seed, for example. Seeds are for the most part designed to withstand the digestive tract of the animals that are eating the fruit that the seeds are contained in. I mean, they're they physically look like a bullet or a teardrop. So they can physically go through the digestive tract without getting hung up. And they're chemically, you know, loaded with lectins and anti-nutrients and all the all, all the things that we've heard about for years now. And, and it's absolutely true that allow those seeds to stay dormant and protect them until they can let down their defenses and produce new life. Now, letting down their defenses is usually happens in a warm, moist environment, um, sometimes also requiring a little bit of fermentation for them to fully get uh, allow those uh, uh, defenses to get let down. And this is exactly what I mean, if you take a seed and plant it in the spring in a warm, moist ground and it, it'll let down its defenses and, and allow the the um, it, it'll allow the shoot to come out. This is exactly what we need to replicate if we're trying to detoxify. Um, some of these plants. This is why sourdough bread uh, is a completely different food than, than you know, it, it does things to the grains that allow a lot of those defenses to get let down and to be a lot safer for us to consume. Now, nuts, though, are a little bit different. Uh, one of the big dangers in there's a lot of dangers in nuts, but one of the big dangers in nuts are oxalates, um, which is thankfully finally becoming um, a little bit more of a common term today in the nutritional world in the dietary world and, and the problem with oxalates is that you know, I've spent about 20 years of my career learning how to de- how different groups around the world detoxify plants and make them safe to eat. Um, oxalates are a toxin that I have not been able to find a good solution for. The best thing to do with oxalates is to um, just realize recognize what plants have them and avoid them whenever possible. Uh, and nuts, most nuts are very high in oxalates. Almonds are off the charts, uh, as a, for an example, and there's, I haven't found a good way to mitigate the dangers of oxalates.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I, I've also struggled with oxalates and, and as have, has my wife, um, hmm. and what, um, I want to get back to to kind of your your story, Doctor Schindler. Um, we left off, and, and you were talking about how um, you started to intertwine your passion for anthropology and um, your own journey with diet and nutrition. So, I'd love to hear how how that's changed
1: for you, and and what um, effects you've seen in your own life. Sure. I, so, I was the guy in high school. Um, remember when I, when I when I started competing and and I became an athlete. I was working out so I. Me nor anybody in my family does anything halfway. Like when we go to do something, we do it, we're all in. So I went from literally being a complete couch potato to a varsity level athlete in no time because I went all in and I was, you know, I went from doing nothing to working out minimum three times a day. And as you can imagine, with that intense exercise, the weight fell off. Um, again, my digestive tract and, you know, my uh, my my issues weren't all gone, but physically I looked different. And for some reason, I was under the impression that um, I should use Muscle and Fitness magazine, which was a you know big deal in the '80s. I should use that as a guide. For some reason, I thought a 260 pound bodybuilder's diet is what a 150 pound high school wrestler should be following. But anyhow, um, I was I was following. Um, you know, I, w- I would spend every Sunday night pouring through Muscle and Fitness magazines and all this Men's Health magazines, and I would have a calculator, a graph paper, and a big, this is before cell phones or yeah, barely even had computers. I had a about a 300-page, inch-and-a-half-thick book that had the nutritional breakdown of all the major foods, You know, grams of fat and proteins and all this. And I would chart out what I was going to eat for the week. Um, and I would sit there to the gram. I was so focused on, on keeping track of every food that went into my body, every gram of fat and carbohydrates and and obviously, all of this was based on poor advice, but I was still tracking every single macro and micronutrient I had access to. I was so focused on it that if I smelled my mother cooking something that wasn't on my list, I was nervous that the aroma would somehow bring grams, micrograms of something into my body that I wasn't accounting for. And I was all worried about it. Um, so... I spent decades of my life tracking every single macro and micronutrient I could. And to, to, to no uh, relief. I mean, I wasn't getting any healthier. And then like I said, when I stopped being an athlete, uh, I, when I stopped competing, the weight just flew back on in ways that you couldn't imagine. And I wasn't, I was trying every diet I could, I was tracking things the same way. When I realized the power of Processing food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible, and started to understand a little bit about uh, what ancestral diets, what we really think they were like, uh, and started to most importantly look at food and see food again. I mean, Michael Pollan, in in the um, in the when he wrote on the words or uh, in, in defense of food, he coined a term called nutritionism. And he describes it as when you put a plate of food down, somebody puts a plate of food down in front of you. When you look at it, you just see a whole bunch of numbers. You don't see the food, you see grams of fat, grams of protein, grams of carbohydrates, whatever. Um, and it, it's sort of this reductionist, nutritionist view, which we've never had before. We've only been able to track calories for a little over 100 years. So, you know, every uh, up until the late 1800s, every time somebody put a plate of food down in front of any one of our ancestors, they actually saw food. When I started to see food again and recognized it as food and understand the power, like I said, of processing food and, 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 and what people in the past and people around the world eat, I stopped tracking calories and proteins and fat. In fact, I haven't stepped on a scale. I haven't uh, tracked a gram of protein or carbohydrate or fat in probably at least 12 years. And I have never been healthier than I am right now. And I'm 49 years old. And that is freeing. It's liberating. And I, for the first time in my life over the past 10 years, for the first time in my life, am enjoying food and nourishing my body and actually see food as something that that nourishes me. It's not something I'm afraid of, not something that um, I have a poor relationship with. And I just, I, I wish I could have had that my entire life.
0: Yeah that's amazing um but i think you're doing great work now to to help a lot of other people realize that um as well which is what's so cool and what does um it it probably varies a lot but what does kind of a typical day of eating or what are some of the favorite foods for you, for you and your family
1: so it it does vary um it varies a lot for a lot of reasons it didn't vary up until the past few years um, because my kids were younger. We had a lot of control over their schedule. We had more control over my schedule and my wife's schedule. <laughs> now, now it's a little bit crazy. We have our hands on a lot of things. Um, but here's some constants that are, that are in my day. Um, things that I make sure that I things that I make sure that I don't, and, and ways that I eat. Number one, we do typically, my wife and I, uh, practice intermittent fasting. Um, and not because it's a very intentional thing, it just, for, for two reasons. One is it just makes sense in our life and we feel better when we do it. And what we've recognized by spending time with uh, traditional groups all over the world, intermittent fasting is a very common just way of eating. Um, and again, it's not an intentional thing. It's just because it works well on their day. And I'll give, I'll give you a great example, a couple of great examples. So in most cases, and this is for farmers, for hunter gatherers, you know, no matter who they, whether they're farming potatoes or farming something else, what what I typically see is um, everybody gets up in the morning and goes and does their thing, whatever that thing is. It could be going hunting, it could be farming, <laughs> whatever it is. Everybody just gets up and, and goes and does their thing. They uh, usually come back in the afternoon, sometime, sometime early afternoon or so, um, to a gathering place and consume a little bit of what was left over from the night before. And certainly this is anecdotal. We've spent time with a lot of groups, but this is no way representative of everybody in the world, but this is what we see time and time again, people come back in from, from working for for the morning or working, hunting, whatever they're doing, come in, they gather, they're consuming leftovers from the night before, and then go back out and work for a few hours. Um, this entire time, somebody, uh, few members of the family are spending the day creating the daily meal and the daily meal is consumed after whatever they were doing for the day is done. Right. And so we can think of it as dinner or supper and everybody comes in, everybody gathers, everybody eats their biggest meal in the evening. And then they do a little bit of visiting, a little bit of talking, a little bit of storytelling and go to sleep and wake up and do the same thing the next day. And what you see there is this condensed eating window, right? They're literally not eating from evening until early afternoon. Um, Again, I just want to say, because I mentioned earlier, the amount of diversity in diets around the world is huge. So I am giving you a small snapshot as a result of the experiences that my family and I have had. But we see this that works very well for our family as well. We get up and we just, we hit the ground running, whether we're exercising or running or going to work or whatever we go and do and do and do. We take a break in the afternoon, get a small bite of something. um, And then we all gather as a family and eat a really um, incredibly nourishing, nourishing from a biological sense, but also also nourishing from an emotional sense because we're all together meal in, in the evening. We, we, have completely excluded from our diets as I think probably most people listening to this have hopefully have um, all industrial nut and seed oils. They don't exist in our house. My wife and I own, you mentioned earlier, the modern stone age kitchen, which is the foodery located in Chestertown Maryland where we are actually cooking the food based on all of the research my family and I have done over over, over decades. Um, We do not have any industrial nut and seed oils in this entire place um, which is a difficult thing to do in the modern food world because that is the mainstay. That's the cheap uh, access to, uh, to, to, oils or fats, obviously. So no industrial oil, seed oils. Um, we use only high quality animal fats in anything that we're heating. Uh, we do use, uh, uh, some extra virgin olive oil, some avocado oil, both of which are fruit oils. The only nut oil that we use is coconut oil. Um, but, that's okay in our minds because its it gives up its fat so easily. It doesn't require any extensive heat or pressure or chemicals in order to, to give that fat up. We use those in cold applications, dressings, you know, marinades, sauce, those sorts of things. Um, we eat a very meat, I'm oh, sorry, animal-based diet. I, I don't like the word meat-based diet because a meat-based diet in my mind excludes things like marrow and liver and those sorts of things. We eat and. Animal-based diet, uh, and a lot of people ask me because there's a lot of, as you know, a lot of um, discussions now about eating massive quantities of, of offal or organ meats. You know, people wonder how much should I eat? How many grams a day should I be should I be eating of liver and and the like? And you know, first off, one caveat: I'm not a nutritionist. I'm an anthropologist, an archaeologist, and chef, so um, I might not be the best person to ask. But if you did ask me, and what my opinion um, that question is no different than me sitting in high school, looking at a muscle and fitness magazine and trying to figure out how many grams of protein I should be eating as a high school athlete. Um, <laughs> it, it is, it is a, it is a question that a dilemma that we've created because of the modern industrial food system. It's a question that's been created because when we, most of us have access to animals, we have access to animal pieces, uh, already packaged, in, in, in on shelves and racks in the grocery store, we can go in there and buy as much liver as we want, or we can go in there and buy as much T-bone steak as we want. That's not the way it worked for millions of years. The way that it worked, and this is my answer, you eat as much liver that makes sense for the amount of meat that you're eating if you ate that entire animal. And the same goes for the heart and the spleen and the kidney and the fat and the marrow as well. You know, when our ancestors and still traditional groups around the world today kill an animal, they eat it, and then they go kill another animal. They don't have access to liver every single day. And if they did, it's a little bit of liver every single day, you, you for, for in my mind, as, as, as weird as it is that so many of us eat meat or certain cuts of meat without eating the rest of the animal, it is equally as weird to eat more liver than that animal, then that animal would have provided for the amount of meat that you're eating. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it wasn't a, a conscious, none of this was conscious, but this is millions. We've been hunting for 2 million years, eating completely nose to tail for 2 million years. Our bodies and our diets have adapted to those packages, those natural packages that were in front of us when we, when we felled an animal. So that's in, in my mind, that's the way we should be approaching these things. And a great way to, Begin to answer those questions for yourself. Is to take home the largest part of an animal that you can handle. Start with an entire chicken. Don't go buy the chicken breast anymore. Don't even go buy the chicken thighs, or don't even go buy the you know the package of chicken liver. Bring home a whole chicken with the you know with the guts that are still on the inside and eat that. And then go get another chicken and eat that. And then move on to an entire pork shoulder. And then you know what? Bring home a half a pig. I'm telling, we fit. Our house is not that big. We put a half a pig on our counter on a regular basis and go through, the, you know, go through the entire thing and butcher it in-house. And you'll get a very good idea about how much fat and meat and marrow and kidneys and all that that, that an animal has when you start approaching it like that. Plus, it's incredibly economical. So we, we do, we, we engage in a complete nose to tail approach animals whenever possible, um, we try to reduce our oxalate intake, especially me, because I'm I the one in the family that has had huge issues with oxalates. So we avoid oxalates whenever possible. We, when when we consume vegetables, we do so with intent, right? We, we when we. We understand what toxins different vegetables have. We understand how to get around them. We understand that even though a a vegetable could be incredibly delicious and pleasing to consume and might have a lot of, or might have nutrition in it, that nutrition is in many cases somewhat inaccessible to our bodies unless we do something to it. So we're regularly fermenting or cooking in certain ways that help us overcome those challenges. Um, And we also don't use any refined sugar in our house or here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen at all. We, we realize that, and this is perhaps in my mind, one of the most important things that I've recognized over the past, well, my entire life, but definitely over the past 20 years or so, I have recognized that nourishment through food is much more than meeting our biological needs. True nourishment, you know, because we as humans approach food differently than any other animal on the planet, and food permeates everything about our lives. It permeates our politics, our religion, our family traditions, everything. And it is impossible because of that to separate our biological needs and our emotional and cultural needs as far as food is concerned. I have recognized that true nourishment requires meeting or exceeding all of those things at the same time. And that, in certain cases, um, and I'm sure there are many people who would disagree with me, but I'm telling you, as a father of three teenagers trying to navigate everything that the world is throwing uh, throwing at us and trying to nourish my family as much in the best way possible, I have recognized that there is, on occasion, something special about eating something sweet. And uh, what we do, the, the compromise we've come to, is that we don't use any industrial—I'm sorry—any refined sugars whatsoever. Um, if, we're, if we're eating something sweet, we've made it from scratch and we're including something incredibly nourishing in it like egg yolks or cream or something. And we are using a natural sweetener, not refined at all. So um, obviously raw honey, maple syrup, or uh, if we're going to use sugar, the best sugar I've found is called muscovado sugar, which is completely unrefined um, and it has an incredible flavor.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really great way to think about you, you pose some really interesting frameworks for thinking about food and thinking about eating. And I love the analogy of, of, um relating it back to, to how you were looking in muscle and fitness magazines and trying to decide how much protein to eat. I, I think a lot of people are looking at nutrition that way. Um, and I I've looked at nutrition that way in the past. Um, but yeah, I, I really like how you're taking a holistic view to, what we put in our bodies, our relationship with food and um, how we can be successful in that in, in the modern food environment. Um, So Dr. Schindler, this has been fantastic. I've learned a ton. Um, Feel like we could go on for another full hour easily. Um, But thank you so much for your time and and, uh, please let the listeners know where they can find you. And I'll of course have links to everything in the show notes
1: as well. It's it's been a true pleasure. Thanks for for letting me share what I'm passionate about with, with your audience uh, they can, people can find out more information about uh, the work that my family and I do in a number of different ways. Um, the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is our nonprofit, which is focused on research, teaching, uh, and outreach, uh, you can find information about that at eatlikeahuman.com. Um, and for the most part, my social media accounts are, are um, championing the work that we're doing through there. So that's, as you mentioned earlier, at Dr. Bill Schindler, Dr. Bill Schindler. Um, the, if anyone is in the area and wants to learn more or come in and see us about the the food that we produce through the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, you can find out information about the Modern Stone Age Kitchen at uh, social media at Modern Stone Age Kitchen and on on the web at uh, ModernStoneAgeKitchen dot And w- one of the things I'd like to just mention as as we're uh, part oh, plus very, very quickly too uh, yeah, please the the the, the focus or uh, a lot of what we. Uh, Briefly talked about here through this conversation is fleshed out in greater detail in my book, Uh, Eat Like a Human, that uh, just came out in November. And you can find that uh, if you want an autographed copy, you can go to our website or you can get on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or or any of the the book outlets. Um, But on, on top of that, one thing I'd like to mention about how we operate here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen um, but I hope I, you know, I look forward to sharing our food with with any of you that are that can come by. But I also think it's a great model for um, dealing with with food at home, especially with families. There are what we're trying to do here is make food food that you can recognize, right? Familiar food as nourishing as possible, and we're using ancestral approaches, ancestral techniques to create pizza tacos, hamburgers and hot dogs, even with French fries that are absolutely as nourishing as possible. And we've really been very proud of the way that we've been able to nourish the community through that approach. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Dr. Schindler. And I'll
0: have links to all of that. Um, And yeah, this has been fantastic. Awesome. It was great talking to you. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon by becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com/carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out and share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at CarnivoreCast or go to CarnivoreCast.com. You can also email me at info at CarnivoreCast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.